This podcast was originally recorded on the 12th of July 2022 and all references to news events or facts and figures were correct at the time of recording. Hello and a very warm welcome to the Financial Freedom Podcast, delivered as ever with personality by the team from Rachel Bell Wealth Management, along with their special guests. Today we are joined by Practice Principal Rachel Bell, Financial Advisor Abigail O'Brien, and we have a very special guest that we've been lucky to secure in the shape of Darren Johnson, who is a Senior Investment Consultant at St. James's Place. You're all very welcome, guys. Hello. Hello, James. Hello, James. Hello. Now, before we progress, please note that the discussion points we cover in this podcast are our own views or those of the guest speakers and do not constitute financial advice. We always recommend that you speak with a professional before considering your own situation and taking action. Now, today we're going to look at the subject of inflation, human nature and behaviour in challenging investment markets. I'm going to take a back seat and allow Rachel, Abigail and Darren to lead the conversation. I'm going to pass over to you first of all, Rachel, to open things up. Thank you very much, James. We are really excited, Darren. Thank you so much for taking the time to to join us today. And we couldn't have thought of anybody better, to be honest, to be having this conversation with. Our job is to help our clients to navigate everything. And, And as you know only too well... Um, We've been on a little bit of a rocky journey for the last two and a half, almost three years. Um, And I think we could have been forgiven for starting to think that we were seeing a bit of light at the end of the tunnel last November time. Um, You know, everybody was starting to feel a little bit more positive. We were coming out the other side from COVID a little bit. Um, And then everything kind of turned a bit upside down again. And I think it would be remiss of me to to not talk about the, the global challenges, but to also say that you know we we are in a very very fortunate position because what's going on at the moment with Russia and Ukraine is is nothing more than a, a human tragedy uh, and i think it puts in perspective into perspective any financial consequences to be honest and i know you know we we as i've said there we do feel very lucky but as i say we were starting to feel a little bit more comfortable as to how things were going and all of a sudden we've ended up with a crisis of massive consequences to do with the cost of living crisis and rising inflation and everything like that. And I think people think that it's just come about all of a sudden because of the war in Russia and Ukraine and because of the supply of gas and oil. And it re- that really isn't the case, Darren, is it? No, I, I think whatever time you would have been investing money, inflation is always something that you would have needed to take into account it it is we are in a slightly frustrating position i think at the moment where the media will jump all over whatever number is announced and we do another one in the next week and a half um the media will dictate what people's views of it are um but inflation has been around for the since the dawn of time i mean i was talking to somebody the other day you know who's just cut, just reached retirement age and they find themselves, it's very difficult for them to to get worked up about 9% inflation when they've lived through double-digit inflation and mortgage rate hikes every every day, for example, in the early 90s. So mm. I think everything needs context. But 
we are in a post-COVID world and anyone, and I'm going to be trying to be diplomatic here, Rachel, any politician or central banker that blames inflation on Russia, um, it's a convenient excuse. It absolutely isn't that. It, about roughly a third of the current inflation rate is oil and gas, which means that even without the Russia situation, you'd have five or six percent inflation as a result of supply chain issues post-COVID. Yeah. So so from that, with the supply chain issue coming again, I know a lot of people aren't really aware of, of because we were all tied up with worrying about our own health. Um, but from the supply chain issue, with everything that happened there, I think some things were a real surprise to me. So you think about, I mean, again, in the news, in the news just today, talking about China locking down. But what yeah. kind of impact does it have, um, Darren, when you've got China locking down ports and cities to a supply chain here? Yeah, I, I, I think sometimes it's difficult for citizens of a particular country to take a step back and look at this in a global context. I, I think once you do that, this this actually becomes relatively simple, um, which is what we try and do, yeah. um, and, and 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 translate it into those terms. But yeah, outside these shores, or, or, or we're, we're lucky enough on these shores to have a highly sophisticated and successful vaccination program. I will go as far as to say that. Once you leave these shores, and a lot of people are now over the summer, they are realising that COVID is still as much of an issue in some other countries as it always has been. Mm. So even yesterday, um, I naively thought that I could go to Spain in three weeks' time and we wouldn't need COVID passes or anything like that. And and then realised my 13-year-old did and we had to go through hoops and I was getting stressed out, et cetera, et cetera. But ultimately, every fund manager we speak to sees COVID as the biggest issue in the world right now, not inflation. Inflation is a consequence and an indirect consequence of COVID. Outside, what, what's happened in the UK is we have all left our houses, decided we wanted to spend some money and realised that this stuff isn't being made as much anymore. Now, it's not being made as much because all the stuff we want is made in China or other countries where there are still lockdowns and COVID is still running rife. Now, what that means is you've not only got the supply issue, i.e. there are fewer things being made and therefore the price goes up, but also you've got a demand spike because we've all come out of our houses and wanted to spend money that we weren't spending a year ago. Now, that is nothing more than a COVID issue, um, which and one that you would expect to settle down over time because the supply should sort itself out as COVID hopefully nears its conclusion elsewhere around the world over the coming years, and that could be years. Um, and you would expect demand to die down because our spending habits are not going to just keep on going as the same uh, the same as the last year. So, so for example, oil and gas are the biggest two contributors to um, to inflation in this country. The third biggest contributor to inflation in this country is clothing, and the very reason for that is because we've all come out of our homes after two three years and realised we're all wearing the same stuff as we did before. Wow! Uh, or like me, you can't fit in them anymore. <laughs> So therefore, you, you, either way, spending goes up in the short term, which has an inflationary impact on prices, but not one the way you would expect that to continue year on year. Darren, that's really interesting. I'm wondering how inflation in the UK is reflected in, in a global context. How are other countries coping right now? We've seen recent unrest in Sri Lanka, for example. That's probably one real yep. extreme but elsewhere in the global economy yeah so so i i talk a lot about the fact that every individual 
has a different experience of inflation. If you're told that it's 9%, all that really means is you've got this big big basket of things that go into the data. Um, if you don't drive, for example, you're not going to have the same inflationary impact as somebody who does. Um, if you haven't updated your wardrobe lately, you're not going to have the same impact or, or, or secondhand cars and things like that. So there's very specific sectors or or products that have seen big spikes. So as each individual will have different ex- inflation exposure or experience, so will different countries. So oil and gas is, is an issue everywhere. I will say that. Elsewhere, so the third biggest contributor in this country is clothing. The third biggest contributor in the US is airline flights. And the reason for that is because in the US, taking flying somewhere is almost the equivalent of us taking a bus. And therefore, as people have been allowed out of their homes or allowed to travel again in the US, demand has spiked, because again, compared to a year ago, but pricing is done by algorithms. Pricing is automated, which means that as demand goes up, the price goes up. It's it's the equivalent of EasyJet in this country. You want you want the first flight, the, uh, first seat on the flight. You don't want the last one, because the last one's going to be more expensive than the first one. So as demand has gone up for airline flights in the US, so has um, so has the price. Combined with the fact that oil has gone up in the US, which means that the flights are more expensive in the first place. So you've had this sort of double whammy of inflation within the US. But when you break it down by sector, it's it's in very specific areas. So. Different countries will have different experiences of of inflation. China has extremely low inflation at the moment because as their supply chain has gone down, so is the demand because people are locked up in their houses. So the Chinese inflation data comes out about 1%, which you would expect when supply has gone down and so has demand. Hmm. So there's an equilibrium there. Elsewhere around the world, there is not because supply has gone down and demand has gone up as people have been going out of their houses. So I would dare say, as every country unlocks, they will deal with high inflation at every single time a country unlocks. Really interesting, Darren. And, and I mean, I wouldn't ever have thought from a clothing perspective, but I suppose if you bring it back to real life and, and 21st century problems, as we know, that when <laughs> I was going to a black tie event recently, I needed to get Keith a new tux, and it was yep. really hard to get one because everywhere was sold out, uh, because, as you say, things are opening up, but I would never have ever put clothing to be so high um, on the agenda for, for, for inflation in the UK. And from another side of things as well, thinking about we, we staycation ordinarily and talking about the algorithms for the US there, I think the same has been applied to holiday let companies that now use algorithms for their holiday lets to drive prices up. I think, I think, I think somebody did say to me. Yeah, you know, I did. Somebody said to me the other day, and it's probably some some truth in it that because we live in a social media age now as well, you get these things popping up on social media that tell you what you were doing this on this day in previous years, and if people are seeing themselves now after two or three years wearing the same things, it's a constant reminder of oh, I don't want to go on holiday with that piece of clothing, or I don't want to wear that to this event and stuff like that. And actually, it didn't matter when we were locked up in our houses, but actually it matters now. And I think you're absolutely right on the algorithms. This isn't somebody sat in an office somewhere deciding that prices will go up. This is most algorithms now and most most pricing structures will work as the more popular something is, the higher cost it will be, which will accelerate inflation in the short term as well. 
That's so interesting that inflation's actually, you know, how it impacts us all is personal to us depending on what we each individually consume, um, mm. I guess. So if we take it right back and think, you know, if you're hearing that inflation rate's 9%, what does that really mean? And if we put it into context, you know, if I've got cash in the bank, what does that mean on my savings next year if inflation's 9%? It's essentially, it means if you've got money in the bank right now, it is almost guaranteed to be eroding in, in value for the next 12 months. Now, that 9% figure of inflation is backward-looking. Forward-looking, we don't think it would be as high, but it will still be more than your cash rate. I think back in the 90s, when there was double-digit inflation, there was double-digit cash. So you could just bunker down, put your money in the bank, and hope it goes away. What I would say for those... Um, wanting to shy away from the volatility of equity markets or whatever investment they're in essentially what you'd be doing by putting money in the bank right now if you if you're fortunate enough to get one percent in your cash rates you'd be you'd be guaranteeing yourself a loss which as volatile as markets are you never guarantee yourself a loss you always give yourself a chance of keeping up so at the moment investors have very you know, have fewer options than ever, unfortunately, of actually, if I want to keep up the real value of my money, I need to have an element of risk here that that we navigate on their behalf. You know, I, I always talk about the fact that, you know, the key to long-term investment is not avoiding risk, it's managing it. And ultimately, that's what we're trying to do right now. It's hard, don't get me wrong, but but it's our job to manage and navigate risks on investors' behalf if we were trying to avoid risk right now, you're essentially jumping out of one risk and into another. Mm. And really, no one likes the word risk. And at the moment, you know, it can be quite an emotional time for investors when they're seeing the markets go down and thinking, what does this actually mean to, on my investment? But actually, it can be a benefit for you when you look at regular investments. Can you just tell us a little bit about how, you know, pound cost averaging would work when you are investing yeah. regularly when the markets are down? And could I just interject there and ask what pound cost averaging is for uh, the Good people point, out there Jim. who perhaps don't know, <laughs> including myself? So, 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 so pound cost averaging is essentially drip feeding money into the market. So that can be either a regular investment. So if you're paying into an ISA or a pension at a, at a set amount per month, you will be drip feeding into the market and therefore taking advantage of, of pound cost averaging, which is as markets go down, um, your buying price reduces, uh, goes down as well, because what, what's actually happening is the first tranche of money goes in, let's say, on the 1st of January. The next, if the market goes down from there, you buy cheaper on the 1st of February. If the market goes down again, you buy even cheaper on the 1st of March. And actually what that means is if you can picture a U-shape on a graph, if you can picture that, it means that actually by the time that you get back to where you were, you've bought so many cheap assets that you actually have made money by just getting back to where you were before. So pound cost averaging as a theory is is, is simply taking advantage of volatility as it occurs. So um, hopefully that makes a bit more sense. We've had quite a few conversations with clients where they have been paying regularly into things and been really concerned because the markets have just kind of continued to be going down. Sure. And having that conversation and just being able to talk people through and realise, and I've, I'm sat here looking at James's face and James is now thinking, oh my God, I need to now buy more. <laughs> I need to be doing a bit more of this pound cost averaging. So we'll we'll, we'll increase your pension contributions after this call, James. Well, <laughs> I, 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 I think it's worth saying that, you know, this isn't you know i don't want to give him to give the impression that yeah this is a 
rose tinted specs type conversation or that you know and or to sugarcoat what's going on it is not it's not a comfortable time for any investor what i will say is that if your if your time if your time scale is still long so yeah i I don't know how old james is but let's say he's got time on his side um ultimately if it's a pension fund you you need to invest for what the world looks like at the point you want your pension fund back what's going on at the moment is largely irrelevant other than to take advantage of volatility as it occurs now if if you're what tends to happen during times of stress is that people's time horizons shorten when things go well you keep an eye on your pen, on your retirement age when things go poorly or in, or relatively poorly you're looking day in day out and wondering when it will end so it, it the human mind plays tricks it's the same investment but but you're viewing it in a slightly different way so what i would suggest is that if for any regular investor um well i will go as far as to say for any regular investor this is almost exactly what you want because if the market is going up in a straight line you're actually buying more expensive assets so instead of the u-shape if you've just got a straight line upwards which is of course what most investors like to see for a regular investor that's no good because you're buying high and buying higher and buying higher. And actually, you're no better off or worse than you would have been anyway, What uh, in terms of in terms of uh, drip feeding into the market. With that U-shape, or let's say a V-shape or a W-shape, or whatever shape you want to, de- to describe it as, as a regular investor with time on your side, volatility is almost exactly what you want early on in your investment period. Because you will be able to pick up cheaper assets and ultimately, it does give you a great going through volatility early in an investment cycle actually increases your chances of success over the long term, as uncomfortable as it sounds. That's a fantastic answer. And what I've actually learned there, Darren, is that I've been pound cost averaging off my own steam in, yes. my, uh, in my share portfolio, which I have as a side hustle to my pension, uh, yes. my pension account. So uh, Disney that was $160. Uh, back at the start of the year is now 94 or 95 or thereabouts and I've thought well I'll, I'll have a little bit more Disney please because it's surely going to go back up at some point so <laughs> thank you for that clarity <laughs> yeah definitely no stock tips on this but um no yeah, no no, no, no. Disney Disney is one of those things and and look I, I, I think a good company does not become a bad company because of inflation and it's important to always step back and say, what have I actually got? Because the valuation is really all that people are looking at. They're not necessarily looking at what they've got or the region or the companies. Companies like Disney have been through decades of things like this. And you can say the same with Coca-Cola or McDonald's or anything you care to mention that's been around decades. Disney has gone down for various reasons, like you said, um, but you speak to anyone on the street, would they think that Disney was going out of business? Whereas, no. You know, ultimately, they lost money in 2020 because the cinemas weren't open and they couldn't make billions on Marvel films. You know, ultimately, if Marvel released four films a year, Disney will make money. So all they need is cinemas open. And, and ultimately, I think the market has a habit of, of pricing these things in the short term you know, to, to whatever's going on. But for the long-term investor, things like that are an ultimate opportunity. That again, whether you're drip feeding or whether whether you're invested for the long term in a lump sum, whatever it be, your probability of success just by holding that type of company is huge. 
Darren, it's, I mean, it's so good hearing it from your perspective and from your experience as well. But one of the things I wanted to ask you about was we, we, we hear so many terms of phrase thrown about at the moment. Um, things like, you know, the, there's, there's opportunity and volatility, which we've just talked about to a certain extent. But we also hear things about things like defence stocks and flight to safety and things like that. And when yeah. we're talking with uh, w- with clients, w- we always have a big discussion around the importance of diversification. Um, but when you kind of think about things like defensive stocks, I suppose what you talked about there with Disney is quite a good example of that, is it's a company that you would expect to weather the storm um, and come through the other side. But w- w- what else would you kind of describe as defensive stocks? So, so fund managers will always talk about asking themselves a question of what do what do consumers want and what do consumers need? So if you're going through an inflationary cycle, there, there will be a period. So, so, so the cost of living crisis is real, okay? There are four and a half million people in this com- country who are struggling to pay their electric bills and bills are going to go up. So there is going to be a point over the winter and in the coming months when people have to decide what they want and what they need, i.e., what what do I have to do? So I've got to, I've got to feed I've got to feed my kids. I've got to clothe my kids. I've got to heat my house. So, so there's certain things that ultimately will be will people will spend their money on regardless of economic cycles. So defensive companies are, they tend to be things like that, i.e., water companies, gas companies, electric companies, whatever it be. Um, what tends to happen in inflationary cycles is things get too expensive and people decide, well, I'm not going to spend that, but I'm going to spend that. So you're going to probably going to see, um, yeah, the opposite of a defensive stock is a cyclical stock, which means if the cycle's going well, then people are spending money on it. So that's things like holidays and cars and TVs and things like that. Now there are things in between, but ultimately defensive stocks, fund managers will be looking at what do people need? And I think in 2022, what people need is probably vastly different than what they needed in 1992 when we last saw a cycle like this. Yes, you had bills, you know, gas bills, water bills, et cetera, in those days. But the way I express it to investors when I'm in front of people in, in, in the events I do is I tell people, let's look, just take a mental note now in your head of your direct debit list. Have a picture of your direct debit list in, in your mind right now. And then ask yourself the question, how many of these have I cancelled or reviewed in the last year? Now, for most people, that would be very low. They would probably have a lot of direct debits, maybe 15, 20 direct debits, and maybe they've revisited one, which is usually something like car insurance or something like that. A fund manager will look at that and go, these are companies that dictate to you how much you pay to them per month. You have a grumble and then you pay it anyway. They are defensive companies. So you are going to have a water bill in there. You're going to have a gas bill. You're going to have an electric bill. You're going to have life insurance, car insurance. These are things that you you have to have. You probably can't revisit them. In 2022, what you've probably also got, and this, this is where defensive means different things in 92 than it did in 2022, you've probably got Amazon Prime. You've probably got Netflix. You might have things like uh, Microsoft Office. Spotify. You know, these, techno- these technology companies aren't seen as defensive companies. And yet there's 400 million people paying Amazon the equivalent of 7.99 a month. Yeah, 
I mean, we're, we're, we're talking about another um, pod shortly with about budgeting, and one of the things we were talking about was contactless and the impact of how much you know everybody yep. just hits the literally taps the end of a machine yep. and does not, not realise <laughs> how much is how much is going on, going on. Um, so, so I think the point with direct debits is if you if you want to see what inflation proofing looks like in 2022, have a look at your direct debit list and think to yourself. If I had to pick, if I had to choose, if I if I needed to find some money somewhere, what would I cancel and what wouldn't I? And this is where fund managers will look at: okay, where are revenues likely to be tight? Well, actually, people still need to heat their homes; they still need to eat. One fund manager said to me, "You can't eat an iPhone." And you know, ultimately, there may come a point where people have to choose between feeding themselves or upgrading their phone. Now, my sixteen-year-old daughter might upgrade her phone, but most people wouldn't. Most people would. Be. So, so what? But the point being, Apple or companies like that haven't been through a period like this before, and that adds a level of risk for fund managers to look at. Whereas, you know, if, if you, you pretty much know that Amazon, Amazon are going to get the majority of that, or Netflix, Netflix, 160 million people paying under a tenner a month, or Microsoft Office, yet 96% of global companies around the world pay for Microsoft Office on a monthly basis. 96% of global businesses. That's huge. That, it's just not going you know, to... They can raise that from 6 99 a month to 7 99 a month. The inflation rate would be 14%, something like that, on that. But you wouldn't bat an eyelid on that pound. Nobody's going to cancel Microsoft and go somewhere else. Where on earth would you go? So interesting. So interesting. And that's a, that's a defensive company. Yeah. I was listening to um, one of your uh, podcasts recently as well, Darren, and we talked a little bit about um, sort of in, other kinds of inflation-proof companies. And there was two particular that were mentioned. One was BP um, and one was BT, um, you know, for, for different reasons. Um, so I think that the figure from, B, uh, from BP was that the forecast or the future pricing was at four times the price-earnings ratio. So... From that, well, one, can you tell tell the audience and talk to us about what the price earning ratio is and why would BP be another company? Apart from the fact that it's fuel, why is BP a company that whose earnings is forecast to go up um, and to come come out of inflation well? There's a couple of reasons. So, price earnings is the key piece of information that fund managers will look at. Um, essentially, yeah, it's, it's two things. It's a ratio. It's the price or the current price. Um, over the uh, the most recent 12 months of earnings. So you can have backwards-looking PE and you can have forward-looking PE. Um, forward-looking is trying to estimate the earnings. Backward-looking is where earnings you already know. So the backward-looking ratio is always spot on for obvious reasons. Hindsight's 2020. Forward is, is, is a difficult one because the price can move before the earnings. So, for example, if the market plummets because it thinks a company is in trouble, the price will go down and the and the earnings will stay the same, which means that the ratios can be a bit out, et cetera, et cetera. But a fund manager who really knows the numbers and knows companies can take advantage of that, i.e. the rest of the world sees something as a danger, but the fund manager sees something as an opportunity. Now, where BP is concerned, look, I, I think there's a lot of ethical discussion about this or ESG discussion about yeah. this. I, there's a lot of... Um, focus on oil prices today, et cetera, et cetera. But again, going back to 
going back to the concept of investing for the way the world looks when you want your money back. And again, this is why for a client wanting a five-year investment against a client wanting a 20-year investment, the answers are probably different as to what they should be investing in. But BP is one of the largest. So, so why would potential earnings be, be, be scheduled to go up? Well, look, there's Russia-Ukraine is priced in to be a pretty long-running conflict, if I'm honest. Mm-hmm. So therefore, oil prices are likely to be high for a long period of time. Now, that isn't a bad thing for oil companies, as ethical as, or unethical as that sounds. Um, over the long term, BP and Shell and the biggest oil companies in the world are um, amongst the biggest spenders on research and development into renewables. So from an ESG stroke ethical point of view, it's highly likely that in 15, 20 years time, the oil companies that you know now are likely to be the biggest revenue streams for renewable energy or, or that they're likely to make more money from renewable energy at a certain point and there will be that tipping point where renewable energy becomes more profitable than oil now if they don't do that they don't exist anymore so therefore as long-term investments and us engaging with these companies to make sure that the esg and the ethical mandates are being met you want to be as an investor at the start of that renewable energy cycle rather than jumping in when everyone else already has yeah, that was really, it's just interesting because, you know, when we're talking to people don't necessarily think about oil companies being being an ethical kind of investment when we think about the future. Uh, but at any company, the life cycle of that company is dependent upon how not only they are from an environmental perspective, but from a social and from a governance perspective. And that's so, so important. Uh, but just kind of bringing it back to the, the inflation and the impact it's having on um, always in our day-to-day lives with, you know, if we were to kind of think of a, a blue sky scenario for how you would, what position you would want to be as an individual in this environment now, um, and we're kind of thinking about having a balance between kind of cash and a long-term horizon, what yeah. would good look like for, for you, Darren, if you were talking to any client for how they should view things at the moment? So the first, the first thing is, the answer is different for everyone, which considering, you know, I'm, t- I'm talking to financial advisors here, you'll be glad to hear. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's hard. You, your, your solution as an investor is different to your next door neighbours or, or all three of us on this call, four of us on this call will, um, will have a different solution of where our money should be. I think it comes down to three things. I always try and simplify it to three things. What do you want your money to do? How long do you want to take to do it? And can you sleep at night? And at the moment, that sleep at night factor is the one being tested. Don't get me wrong. But the way I always say it is if nine months ago, if in the last nine months, your objective hasn't changed and your timescale hasn't changed and your risk profile hasn't changed, then ultimately you're still in the right place. Because what you would have done nine months ago and what you do now, the world hasn't fundamentally changed. 2020, the world did change. 2022, this, no, the world has not changed enough to warrant a wholesale change in your investment uh, solutions. Stepping back, if you've got a pool of money that you know you need in the next two years, for example, why would you take the risk on that money? You know, if, you, if you've got money earmarked for um, a holiday or a car or school fees or whatever it be, ultimately, you don't want to see that money fluctuating. And ultimately, we don't know what market's going to do in the second half of this year. We don't know what market's going to do tomorrow. If there is another market fall for some unforeseen circumstance, 
you don't want that money to be risked. Now, you'll notice that I said two years there. I know probably I should say five. It's really difficult to suggest that money needed in year four or five and inflation at 9%, that money should go in the bank. That's really being tested right now. But ultimately, it's that sleep at night factor. If you've got money that you know you will need and is earmarked for a particular um, something, why would you take any risk on that money whatsoever? Yeah, it's, it's peace of mind, you isn't it? Hands and hands uh, yeah, it's, it's the peace of mind. And I think what certainly what we um, want everybody want to encourage everybody to do is to, especially for people who haven't really had a lot of investment experience. You know, so um, I've been around long enough to, to have lived through quite a few um, market uh, cycles and things like that now. But there's a lot of people who have only kind of recently invested. And one of the things we want to do is to be approachable to be able to have the conversation and to talk about these things that we're discussing now, uh, Darren, because unless you've gone through it before and unless you've had the opportunity to sit down and have the conversation, why would you know these things? What's really interesting when I sat in on climbings like this is how many people are taking risks they don't need to take. And actually, I think it's a conversation. You hear the word risk and you think, oh, I don't want to take it. I just, you know, it, it conjures up thoughts. It's a, neg- it's a fairly negative word. You know, the psychological side of this is absolutely fascinating. I, I talk a lot about the fact that if you ask somebody in a market, for, in a market rise how, how, how risky they are, they'll go, I'm high risk. I want some of this. The fear of missing <laughs> out. If you ask somebody during now, what's your risk profile? They'll say, I'm low. So you're high risk on the way up and you're low risk on the way down, which really explains why everyone ends up medium. Because nobody and nobody will ever say to you, I'm medium, because nobody wants to see themselves as average. The psychological side of it is fascinating. It will always be based on the perception of whether things are going well or not. Yeah. Now, in the past, the very thing you should be doing is the opposite of what your mind tells you to do. I.e., you should be high risk at times like this and low risk at times when things are going well. That isn't worth fighting. There is no there is no reason to fight that. But ultimately, your solution is based on whatever your individual problem is. So when you're talking to somebody who has limited investment experience, it's important to take a step back as the investor and say, what do I actually want to achieve here? Because in times of stress, which we're very much in, at times of stress, what those three things that I said are all that matters, everything else is noise. You've got the objective, you've got the time scale, you've got the risk profile. At times of stress... The risk profile dictates the objective, i.e., I am feeling really worried about this. Therefore, I need to. Rein, I'm going to rein in my objective. What should be happening is the objective and the timescale should be established with you or Abigail or an advisor, and ultimately, then you tell them how much risk needs to be taken. And what tends to happen when you go through that exercise is you realise that as an investor, you're probably taking more risk than you need to. Or Especially even, over the long Sorry, Darren. Or yeah. even different risk with different investments because it's for different things. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's a worthwhile – this is the whole point of the six-month reviews. I also think that you know, people get obsessed with what I'm in now. Yeah. And actually, an advisory relationship is going to be reviewed every six months, every 12 months, whatever the agreement is. What you're in today is the best thing and our recommended investments today. In six months' time, it may be slightly different. You wouldn't expect a wholesale overhaul. But you would expect some changes. As the world evolves, our investments will evolve. The opportunity sets will evolve. The threats will evolve. You know, I, I, unfortunately, over the next 10 years, 
something will happen again which causes a significant market fall. History would suggest that. Um, There will always be something to worry about. I talk a lot. There will always be a reason not to do it. But hindsight will always make, make you wish you had. You mentioned before, uh, Darren, and something that we just try and try and steer our clients away from is that is the noise. And going back to your analogy of 1992, or even in 2008, yes, we had the inter- internet in 2008, but we didn't have 24/7 media. And one of yeah. the things that we're finding so much is that I think clients are worrying more because there's no escape from the noise. Um, yep. or the media hype as to what's going on. So we find ourselves having the conversation more. And that's not something I would want to discourage, to be honest. Because when we do sit with a client, and when we try and take a step back, and like you say, we revisit the objectives, have those objectives changed? Have we got the kind of cash reserves and that peace of mind there? Have we got the plans in place? Have your plans changed? And we talk about what is going on. It's our job to work really hard for clients in in times that we're in now, probably more so than any time because we want clients to be able to come to me, to Abigail, to just talk through and strip away some of the noise. And that's so important. Absolutely. I, I think that I would say that, that, that there's three three sources of return over time. One is markets will go up. Historically, markets have gone up. Economies have gone up. That's the watch the tide, not the waves, and time in, not timing, slides, etc. The second source is St. James's Place trying to find fund managers that will outperform even that to add the icing on the cake, if you will, to add the extra, let's say, one or two percent you know, over time, which can add up quite a bit. And the third source of return is really difficult to quantify, but it's the it's the advisory relationship. You know, there will be times at the end where so, so at the end the tax is yeah the tax side of it is absolutely crucial in terms of long term outcome. But along the way, the point of the review process is to make sure that I, I say that, that people don't get in their own way that that they're doing the they're not making the wrong decision at the wrong time or they're not you know you've almost got that front line. It's someone to talk to. Um, it's you know, to navigate, sure isn't it? You have clients phoning you and emailing you day or night, I'd imagine. Um, but ultimately, you are talking them through the stress, through the volatility. And ultimately, that will add to anyone's long-term outcome because when you make emotional decisions, you tend to make illogical and the wrong one. When you talk it through with somebody it suddenly becomes a bit more rational. And it, look, if you still want to make that change at that point, then that's got to be right for you. Yeah. But it's amazing how often just a conversation with somebody for 10 minutes suddenly make things, makes things a bit more rational. And hopefully, you know, some of the things we've been through today are, you know, make, make sense of things a bit and also actually puts it in less emotional terms. And yeah, you know, we, we can't get away from 24-hour rolling news and social media. I mean, you, you, can, you can unsubscribe to these things and something will pop up somewhere that tells you what's going on. Um, I haven't watched a piece of news um, in the last two weeks, but I probably know everyone who's resigned uh, in the cabinet and everyone who's put their name forward for the next leader. I, I don't know how, but it finds me. Now, that's an extreme example of, of the news flow, but it feels like things are more chaotic than ever, but they're not. 
the 20, the, the, sorry, the 2000s, the first decade of this century, in market terms, were way, way more chaotic than this. And yet, because you know, the smartphone wasn't invented till 2007, it feels like we've never been through anything like this before, but we have. Yeah. Uh, and I dare say we went through worse two years ago. Um, but it was understandable because everyone was locked up in their homes and had everything else to worry about. It's the compound effect, isn't it, of not getting over um, a threat yeah. to life, which is what, you know, COVID was and it's, still is in many countries. Um, and yeah. now it's compounded again. But in terms of market falls, there were, there were five in the space of 10 years between 2000 and 2009 that were worse than this one. So the theory of, and I have, I have had a client say to me, I've never known anything like it. And my instant instinct on that was, did you invest two years ago? Because that was worse. Um, you know, there were several periods between 2000 and 2009 that was worse. The key issue with this one and why it affects people so much, I think, in terms of stress and volatility is it's not the number itself. It's the fact that we're now eight months into it. Yeah. We haven't had, we haven't had a market fall of this type, i.e. slow and drawn out for 15 years. And that affects people. That just really puts it into perspective, I think, especially with when you look at, you know, the media and everything's going on. So we spoke about inflation and the cycles of inflation, how it affects everyone. We've spoken about, you know, what to affect in the upcoming months. Is that really? We're certain that there is uncertainty. And we've spoken about economic cycles and pound cost averaging and the importance of diversification. Can you just please take a moment to talk to us a bit about stagflation and how that affects investing and the markets and your investment? Yeah, I think stagflation is probably the latest buzz term that we're going to start seeing the media really jump on at some point. Um, stagflation is, is is essentially high, higher inflation in a, in a, in a low-growth environment or a slowing-growth environment. Now, that's up for, that's up for debate. I, I, I think high inflation at this level, if the, if the economy starts to slow meaningfully and inflation stays sticky at this level then yes you see stagflation and the world hasn't seen that for for many decades um the, the, just because it's sort of 50 50 at the moment doesn't mean that the press won't go hard on it um you know for, for context you'll see in the word recession banded around a lot the market currently is pricing in a recession at about 40 percent. so even the most likely outcome at the moment is not recession um, and yet I'm seeing it talked about constantly. So stagflation, recession, that, 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 that will be talked about a lot. Now, historically, the only data you've got on stagflation is from the 70s when you, you had less to invest in. And what history will tell you is that gold or commodities were the places to be. The difficulty with that is the world has moved on for 50, for 50 years and there are a lot more things now. But also there's, there's a lot more newer things that you don't know what, to, what happens in a stagflationary environment. So the short answer to that is, I don't know. History would suggest you need gold and commodities. I think there'll be more winners out of it than, than, than that, um, but only time can tell. The other thing I would suggest if people are getting worried about stagflation is that two years ago, the world was worried about deflation. And the world can change very quickly. So again, if you've got a 10, 15, 20-year time horizon, then ultimately we can't get caught up in the short-term noise of we're in stagflation, we're in this, we're in that. 
when over the course of the next 10, 15, 20 years, there will will, history would suggest there'll be a a period of extreme strength as well, Um, far more good years than bad years. Having your eye on the end goal and at the end of the tunnel is absolutely crucial with whatever's going to be thrown at us because, yes, it could be stagflation. Yes, it could be recession. Trump's going to come around again at some point. There'll be a new political system in the UK at some point. There'll always be something to worry about. There will always be something to worry about. But, yes, stagflation is likely to be the next big thing, next big buzzword that's reported on that the media don't really understand, but they will go hard at anyway. Um, But that's... It, that's, it makes it even more important to try and make sense of what the news flow is and to have these discussions with the likes of Rachel and Abigail here um, because the noise is not going to stop. If anything, the information flow is just going to keep going and yeah. increase. Technology isn't going to go away and therefore you, are, you, you can fight it or you can just accept it and say we'll cross this bridge when we come to it every single time. Darren, you've given us an absolutely fascinating insight today into into a whole host of issues linked to the economy. And I thank you very much for that. And of course, Rachel and Abigail for your input into the conversation as well. Now, Darren, every week on the pod, we have a myth buster and we seek to take a question that we're commonly asked or a comment that we hear a lot and shed some light onto it. Now, the myth buster this week is that inflation is a bad thing and we would be delighted if you could give us your insight into that particular question and um, so uh inflation means different things to different people as we talked about before so every household will have a different ex- experience of inflation for the first thing we're focusing very much on saving and investing but you cannot with a straight face tell somebody who's in debt that inflation is a bad thing um you know, the main reason that my mum ended up with a mortgage of about £40 a month at the end of her 25-year term was because inflation had taken care of a lot of it. Um, and then, yeah, I, I think if you've got long-term debt, such as mortgages, inflation is, a period of inflation has always been helpful to those people. And and we we live in a world where government, household and, and personal debt are at an all-time high. So debt for a couple of years will not do debt levels any harm whatsoever. From a saving and investment point of view, it becomes even more important to be picky about your investments, to um, make sure that you've got fund managers who are keeping an eye on what the short-term problems are, if inflation is seen as a problem with that. And like I said, there are there are companies who will make money regardless of inflation, and they're the ones that our fund managers will be focus, focusing on during an inflationary cycle. Darren Johnson, Senior Investment Consultant at St. James's Place. Rachel and Abigail, thank you so much for your time. It's been another wonderful pod and we look forward to catching up soon. Thanks, guys. We always want to hear what you've got to say about the pod. So if you have any feedback or questions about the world of financial planning and wealth management, we'd love for you to get in touch. You can find us on our social media channels across Facebook, LinkedIn and Instagram simply by typing Rachel Bell Wealth Management into the search and as if by magic the ladies will appear. Or you can head to our website rachelbellwealthmanagement.co.uk where you'll find lots of details and a contact us form. We need you to know that the value of an investment with St James's Place will be directly linked to the performance of the funds you select 
and the value can therefore go down as well as up. You may get back less than you invested. Rachel Bell Wealth Management is an appointed representative of and represents only St. James's Place Wealth Management PLC, which is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority for the purpose of advising solely on the group's wealth management products and services, more details of which are set out on the group's website, sjp.co.uk. The title partner practice is the marketing term used to describe St. James's Place representatives.